What if you had everything? Money, power, romance. What would you do with it? We might find it hard to imagine ourselves in that situation, but in this lesson, we'll look at the Old Testament, King Solomon, who had it all. Hi, I'm Yvonne Pran with Bible 805, where you learn to know, trust, and apply the Bible. We'll look at Solomon's life because though you have every earthly measure of wealth, it doesn't mean God is impressed. And in contrast, we'll also look at how to live a life that guarantees true wealth forever. In our lesson entitled, Solomon, Lessons from a Wasted Life. Here's where we are in reading through the Bible. We finished the study of David's life, and let's review it quickly. David trusted God from his youth. He killed the lion. He killed the bear. He killed Goliath. He was anointed as king when he was very young, but he endured much testing for probably 10 to 15 years before he actually became king. As king, he united all Israel. He had great military and organizational success. He sinned. He sinned deeply, but he repented sincerely. He was forgiven and pressed ahead in serving God and his people. In his later years, he prepared for every part of the temple and left a legacy of a godly life, many psalms, and the ultimate description as a man after God's own heart. Now, after him, Solomon becomes king. He was chosen by God and David. After some intrigue and an attempted coup by his brother, finally he's made king. And here is David's charge to him. David says, I am about to go the way of all the earth, so be strong, act like a man, and observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in obedience to him and keep his decrees and commands, his laws and regulations as written in the law of Moses. Do this so that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go, and that the Lord may keep his promise to me. If your descendants watch how they live, and if they walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul, you will never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. Solomon knew God's requirements from the start, and that obeying God's law was to be the non-negotiable foundation of his life for his personal success and that of his nation. In addition, and this is really important, a lot of people don't realize that this really links up with Solomon in the way that it does, but here's his testimony of how he was raised. This comes from Proverbs 4 in the Living Bible. And Solomon is speaking, and he says, I too was once a son, tenderly loved by my mother, that would have been Bathsheba, as an only child, and the companion of my father, King David. He told me never to forget his words. If you follow them, he said, you will have a long and happy life. Learn to be wise, he said, and develop good judgment and common sense. I cannot overemphasize this point enough. Cling to wisdom. She will protect you. Love her. She will guard you. Getting wisdom is the most important thing you can do. And with your wisdom, develop common sense and good judgment. If you exalt wisdom, she will exalt you. Hold her fast, and she will lead you to great honor. She will place a beautiful crown upon your head. My son, listen to me and do as I say, and you will have a long, good life. Now, it seemed like he probably paid attention to that because that is what he asked God for. But uh, David does go on where he says, I would have you learn this great fact that a life of doing right is the wisest 
life there is. If you live that kind of life, you'll not limp or stumble as you run. Carry out my instructions. Don't forget them, for they will lead you to real living. Don't do as the wicked do. The good man walks along in the ever-brightening light of God's favor. The dawn gives way to morning splendor, while the evil man gropes and stumbles in the dark. Above all else, guard your affections, for they influence everything else in your life. This is the advice Solomon had from David, his father. Let's see how he followed it. He had this foundation of solid teaching and advice. Let's see how he did. Well, he started out well. He started with immense amounts of wealth given to him by his father for the construction of the temple. Then God appears to him and tells Solomon to ask for anything he wants. He asks for wisdom, and God gives it to him, plus the promise of every material blessing. He builds the temple, plus palaces, fortresses, and other public works. He writes all or part of three books in the Bible in Psalm 72 and 127. These parallel stages in his life, and we're going to go over them briefly, and then spend some time on the last part of his life, and then we will later in our lesson talk about what we can learn from it. Now, the books that he writes that I just mentioned are all what are considered wisdom literature. The book of Job is also part of this category, and the cautions on the book of Job apply here as well. The most important thing that you need to remember with these books, as with all of wisdom literature, the ones that um, Solomon wrote and the book of Job, is there to be read as a whole. Pulling verses out of context is misleading and often ends in an incorrect interpretation and application. Often the whole point of the book is not revealed until the end, and that colors the overall message of it. For Job, this is extremely important, as it was in Ecclesiastes. Remember in Job, and please go back and look at the lessons that I did on this previously there on Bible805.com, but with Job... His friends say a lot of things that sound sort of good. Well, Job, if you only did this or if you did that, you know, then God would bless you. And they say things like that all throughout the book. And we can be tempted to think that they're giving good advice. And some people actually use his the friend's words in that way. But that's completely wrong, because at the end of the book, God says to Job, I am angry with your three friends because they did not speak correctly about me. God condemns what they said. What they said was wrong. And we need to remember that when we read the book of Job. Now, following, I'm going to give you some specific notes on the different books that Solomon wrote, but please keep this overall thing in mind that you don't want to just be pulling things out here and there. I'm also going to be talking about them in what I consider the suggested progression of when they were written in his life. First of all, the Song of Solomon was most likely written early in his life. It's a picture of romance, of love. It's a song. It's a drama. Sometimes it's taken as an analogy of the love of God for Israel 
or of Christ for the church. And you'll find a lot of commentators say that. But I personally think that's weird. Um, Maybe as a stretch, maybe, you know, in an overall sense, but you can get really, really weird on it. Um, Things can get a bit odd if you do that. I think John MacArthur in his study Bible had a much more sensible summary statement where he said, the most satisfying way to approach Solomon's song is to take it at face value and interpret it in the normal historical sense, understanding the frequent use of poetic imagery to be pic- to depict reality. In other words, it's the story of a man in love. Solomon was younger, and he was very much in love. However, though, um, Solomon, Song of Solomon 6.8 tells us he already had 60 wives and 80 concubines. Now, that's not anywhere near what he ends up with a few years later, but still at a point in time in his life, it appears that he experienced true love for one woman. It is a picture of God's approval and celebration of romantic love. The story told here really makes his later excesses with women all the more tragic. The idolatry aside that we'll get to in a little bit, what kind of true love or relationship can you have with a thousand women? It said he had 700 wives, 300 concubines. And sadly, near the end of his life, he recognized the futility of it when he says in Ecclesiastes 7.28, I found one upright man among a thousand, but not one upright woman among them all. In other words, a thousand women in his life, and he couldn't point to one of them that he considered upright before God. How sad. But next comes Proverbs in the progression of his life and writing. And most likely he wrote this at midlife, probably after he'd asked God for wisdom when he was at the height of his reputation for wisdom. Now, he didn't write all of the Proverbs. He collected many of them. I've already uh, shown you a passage where he was quoting his father. And others added to it later. You can, uh, in the book, it just says, you know, that Hezekiah collected some and King Lemuel there at the end. But he wrote or or collected or recorded the majority of them. There's a lot of wise advice in them for us. That's why if you're following the reading plan from Bible 805, you read a chapter in Proverbs every other day. It's so important for life lessons. And please, again, look back on the entire lesson on Proverbs for more of an exclamation. Um, explanation, excuse me, of why we do what we do in that. However, people have one big problem when they read Proverbs, and the most common problem is that you need to remember that Proverbs are not promises. They are wisdom statements that if you do certain things based on a desire to serve God, there is a more likely chance that you'll have a positive outcome. But there are no guarantees. It's not a book of magic formulas or magic spells or magic whatever. Now, let me give you one very frequent misinterpretation of a proverb. And that is in Proverbs 22, 6, where it says, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Remember, it's a proverb. It's not a promise. Because kids from good families sometimes turn out badly. Sometimes they return, sometimes they don't. God does not interfere with our free will. However, 
Children will have a much better chance of turning out well if they're trained well when they're young, especially if you fill their lives with God's Word. God can then call it to mind later. You want to read the Bible to them, read Bible stories to them, get them age-appropriate appropriate Bibles and books, and be sure their lives are filled with that. Don't be surprised if you only take your kids to church on Sunday, once a week, you don't act like a Christian the rest of the week. You don't read the Bible to them. You've got them all involved in all kinds of sports or band or this or that and all kinds of other things. And then you wonder why they turn away from God. If God was just this tiny little part of your life and you didn't fill them with God's word, sadly, God can't use anything to recall to them his words, his wisdom later. So I, in many ways, really plead with you, if you have children or grandchildren, to get them in God's word. Bible stories, whatever you can do. There's a wonderful uh, book that is, um, it's like a comic book, but it's a really good Bible. Any of those sorts of things, get God's word in their heart, and then God can call that to mind later. There's so much that's good in Proverbs, and again, please do go back to the lesson on it. Now, Solomon's life history continues. He becomes known for his wisdom. Many in the world travel to hear him and bring gifts to him. He begins building the temple with his father's gifts. Progressively, he needs more wealth. To do all this, he needs. He begins trade. He conscripts labor. He begins to heavily tax the people. God appears to him a second time, and this time it's a warning. After he'd finished building the temple, the Lord said to him, I heard the prayer and plea you've made before me. I've consecrated this temple, which you have built, by putting my name there forever. My eyes and heart will always be there. But as for you, if you walk before me faithfully, with integrity of heart and uprightness, as as David your father did, and do all I command, and observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David. But if you or your descendants turn away from me, And do not observe the commands and decrees I've given you and go off and serve other gods and worship them. Then I'll cut off Israel from the land I've given them and will reject this temple I've consecrated for my name. Israel will then become a byword and an object of ridicule among all the peoples. This temple will become a heap of rubble. Now, an important application here. You want to guard your heart. He forgot all the advice from his father. Remember his father said, above all else, guard your heart for everything flows from it. As I was thinking about all of this, I was reminded of Matthew 7, where at the last judgment, people try to justify themselves by the great things they've done. And Jesus says, I never knew you. It isn't the great things that God wants, doing miracles or even building this extraordinary temple. That isn't what God wanted. He wants a relationship with us. He wants our hearts, our attention, our love. Human relationships are no different. We don't want stuff from someone we love. We want a relationship. We can do or build great things, but it's our hearts our lives, that are the most important thing that we can build for God. David knew that. 
but somehow Solomon took a different path. His wealth and his power increased. It tells us that King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. The whole world sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. Year after year, everyone who came brought a gift, articles of silver and gold, robes, weapons and spices, horses and mules. Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he kept in the chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. And it wasn't only horses that he collected. As things progress, it says, King Solomon loved many foreign women, besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about whom the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them, because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely, as his father David had done. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of of Moab, and for Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives, who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. Do you realize what this passage says? Moloch was the god who was worshipped by burning children alive as a sacrifice. That is beyond horrible. And Solomon built a shrine for that and apparently participated in these sacrifices. The collection and horses of horses and wives were direct violations of God's commands. In Deuteronomy 17.16, which he should have been familiar with and probably was, it says, The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives, or his heart will be led astray, which it was. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold, which he did. He was specifically told not to do these things, and sadly, these things describe the remainder of his life. What happened? How could someone who had so much end so badly? Let's look back at his life for a few cautions and lessons. Solomon began well, except that there is an exception early on, a couple of them actually, where first of all it says in 1 Kings 3.1, Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married his daughter. And then in 1 Kings 3.3 it says, Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the instructions, this is early on, given him by his father David, except that he offered sacrifices and burned incense on the high places. These small deviations from God's will, he allowed these little sins of accept this, accept that, to get a whole lot bigger. First of all, 
He just married Pharaoh's daughter. That was expedient. It was a, a lot of commentators will say, well, he just did this as a political alliance. But I'm wondering now, why was that? God does never, not ever command that. He says, you know, don't go there, literally, with, with Egypt. Now, his father, we see fighting and leading armies. We don't ever see Solomon doing that. He this marrying Pharaoh's daughter as a political expediency that led to marrying more and more for political reasons and, of course, I'm sure human desires. And then the one other except that where he violated God's commands to not worship wherever he wanted. In Leviticus 17, it makes it very clear one of the reasons that they instituted the worship in the tabernacle is God's people were to bring their sacrifices only to that one place. Solomon made an exception. He went and worshiped where he wanted to. And that, I think, allowed him to be more easily led into worshiping the gods of his wives wherever they wanted to worship them. These little things led to a life of more and more expediency and indulgence, as is recorded in Ecclesiastes. In the Ecclesiastes, it goes on, and he he really taught, he'd been given so much, but he was so selfish about it. Ecclesiastic written near the end of his life, apparently. It's all about him. It's just a constant repetition of I, 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 me, me, me. Let me read you some passages out of the Living Translation. Here's Solomon speaking, and he says, I said to myself, look, I'm better educated than any of the kings before me in Jerusalem. I have greater wisdom and knowledge. I decided to try the road of drink, while still holding steadily to my course of seeking wisdom. Next, I changed my course again and followed the path of folly, so I could experience the only happiness that most men have throughout their lives. Then I tried to find fulfillment by inaugurating great public works program, homes, vineyards, gardens, parks, orchards for myself, and reservoirs to hold water to irrigate my plantations. This was all built, by the way, uh, with forced labor. I'm sure it wasn't as fulfilling and exciting as uh, for the people that did all the work as it was for Solomon. He goes on, Next, I brought, I bought slaves, both men and women, and others were born within my household. I also bred great herds and flocks, more than any of the kings before me. I collected silver and gold as taxes for many kings and provinces. And his list of self-indulgence continues. In the cultural arts, I organized men's and women's choirs and orchestras. And then there were my many beautiful concubines. So I became greater than any of the kings in Jerusalem before me. And with it all, I remained clear-eyed so that I could evaluate all these things. Anything I wanted, I took and did not restrain myself from any joy. I even found great pleasure in hard work. This pleasure was, indeed, my only reward for all my labors. But as I looked at everything I tried, it was also useless, a chasing of the wind, and there was nothing really worthwhile anywhere. Solomon tried it all. He did it all, as he says, under the sun, and nothing satisfied when it was all just for him. Instead of his life traveling towards the full light of dawn, he moved more and more into darkness. At the end of his life, he realizes what he's done, and the book of Ecclesiastes ends with his final advice. Remember your Creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come and the years approach when you say, I find no pleasure in them. Now all has been heard, and here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep His commands, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, 
whether it is good or evil. It was too late for him. Note that even in this passage, though he gives advice, though he recognizes the reality of his really futile life, we do not see any personal repentance here. Now God appears to him a third time for judgment. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude, and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Yet I will not tear out the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. We then read about the rebellions against him, and finally his death. There was constant trouble and rebellion. Hadad the Edomite reasoned the son of Eliada, and ultimately Jeroboam, who will become the first king of Israel when the kingdom divides after Solomon's death. It's a really tragic ending to what could have been an extraordinary life of worldwide witness, but he squandered it on himself and not only ruined his life, but also destroyed his nation. The rest of the Old Testament will tell the stories of a divided kingdom, endless wars, and ultimately foreign captivity. But of course, God never gives up on his people throughout the whole thing. So what can we learn from Solomon's life? This is going to get positive. So hang in there. I know this has been a little bit depressing so far. We need to remember that we didn't earn and don't deserve anything we've been given. An earthly example, we don't think much of people who inherit wealth and then they act like they earned it or owed special privileges because of it. How foolish of us to believe that what we have is because we deserve or earned it or are better than those who have little. Whatever we have, from life itself, the air we breathe, where we live, our families, our talents, our everything is a gift. The only thing we can take credit for and what we're responsible for is how we use what we've been given. Now let's look at some applications of this. In contrast with David, Solomon's life was so sad because this is how David lived. Even when he was running from his enemies, he took care of his parents. He cared for his followers. He used his wealth to build the temple. He wanted to build it for God, not just for him, 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 me, me, me. Even in repenting of his sins, he thought of what it could teach others. It says in Psalm fifty-one, twelve: Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I'll teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. His overall, David's overall life orientation, though he certainly had his ups and downs, was that he was never centered on himself, but what he could do for God and others, things Solomon never seemed to care about. Now more of David's attitude towards his gifts. In Psalm 24, 1, it says, The earth is the Lord's, and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. In Chronicles twenty nine eleven through 13, when he is thanking God, his, his, the great passage there, it says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours 
is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. Who am I, he goes on to say, and what is my people, that we should be able thus to offer willingly, for all things come from you, and of your own we have given you. One commentator states that in today's, uh, if you compare it with today's money or standards or whatever it is, that David's wealth would have been over 200 billion. (laughs) And yet he doesn't boast about it. He doesn't say, oh, I was so great to accumulate this and that and the other. Nor is that what he remembers for. But he's, and he gave it all away. He's remembered as a man after God's own heart. He gave all he had to building God's temple and encouraged others to do that. He didn't spend it on experiences or on himself. Even more than David, let's look at the king of ultimate wealth and how he used it. Philippians 2 tells us that Christ Jesus, the true and highest king, it says, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, death on a cross. Not only in the big way of dying on the cross, but also remember that before his death in John 13, it tells us that he washed the disciples' feet. And it goes on to say, after washing their feet, he put on his robe again, sat down and asked, do you understand what I was doing? You call me master and Lord, and you do well to say it, for it is true. Since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I've given you an example to follow. Do as I have done for you. How true it is that a servant is not greater than his master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends him. You know these things. Now do them. That is a path of blessing. No matter what our gifts or position, our priority should always be to serve. One other small scriptural detail. In John 20, after Jesus' resurrection, this is just such an extraordinary story, he appears to the disciples as they were fishing, and he calls them to come ashore, and the passage continues in verse 9 where it says, When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you just caught. Come and have breakfast. Jesus took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. Do you realize how extraordinary this is? Aside from the fact that men did not cook and serve breakfast for people in those days, that was considered something that just women or slaves would do. But here we have the risen Lord of all creation who conquered death and Satan, who secured the eternal redemption of the cosmos. He takes time to cook and serve his doubting disciples' breakfast on the beach. In conclusion, we've looked at four kings, Saul, David, Solomon, and finally our Lord Jesus. 
The human kings all had their shortcomings. Sadly, Saul and Solomon simply went from bad to worse and allowed their sins to consume them and died miserably. David sinned, but repented, and his life looked forward to a coming king, our Lord Jesus, the extraordinary ultimate example of how power is to be used. Jesus, our final and eternal king, gives us the example of power used in sacrificial service. We have a choice to make. Which king will we follow? On the one hand, Solomon and Saul followed Satan, who said, I will ascend. I will be like God. I will rule over. My needs are what are most important. My this, my that, my, 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 me, 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 I, I, I. David, in contrast, looked ahead and modeled a life like Jesus, the true God and ruler of all, who emptied himself and served, who humbled himself and gave his all to others. We may not have a kingdom, we may never have the power of a king, but we can rule in our own hearts and lives. We can choose to serve others, and in that serving, not in the stuff we accumulate or the power we possess, and in that, as Jesus promised, in that serving, we will find real, lasting, and eternal joy. That's all for now. Please check out the additional resources at www.bible805.com. And please tell your friends about the materials that are there. There's so much that's there that you can use it any way you want. Uh, Copy it, uh, link to the videos, listen to the podcast, whatever you'd like to learn more about God's Word and to apply it in your life. Until next time, I'm Yvonne Pran, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus. And I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.